You can turn uh, in your copy of God's Word this evening to the epistle of Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4 is where we're going to be looking. 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 7 to 11. A text that I believe is especially relevant um, for where our church is headed in this next season. A text that I've been really excited about, excited to read and look at with you guys. And I think there is so much here for us to receive. So 1 Peter 4, verses 7 to 11. This is God's word. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading, uh, the sharing, and the hearing of his word. In 1976, uh, Francis Schaeffer published a popular Christian book whose title simply asked this question, How Should We Then Live? Obviously a very important question. We, everyone asks, how should I live in this world? How should I conduct myself? How should I behave? According to what rules should I follow in my life? And for us as Christians, we might add to this, well, how should I then live to glorify God? We know that that's our chief end, to glorify and enjoy God. And so how should we live in a way that most conduces to that? We're called to obey God's word. But all our obedience comes in a particular cultural moment, a particular cultural context. And so what I find actually most interesting about this question Schaefer asked is the word then. He says, how should we then live? What's that then doing there? What he's saying is, in light of world history that's brought us to where we are in our culture, in light of the current cultural moment in which we find ourselves, in light of all that, how then should we live? Because we know that there are forces at play that buffet, come against us to stop us from living in the way God would have us live. Preeminently, we think of sin in our culture and the way sin seeks to pull us in. How should we live in light of living in a sinful culture? This is a question Peter is asking, and he is seeking to advise in this passage the church he's writing to how they should live in the midst of a a sinful culture. If you want to look with me back at verse 3 and 4 in chapter 4 here, he tells us about the sinful culture. He says, The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. He's saying there's a sinful pressure 
And the world is surprised that you don't join them in it. It's, it's a constant pull to you. And so we need to live as Christians aware of the sinful forces of our culture. That's one reality we have to live in. But as Christians, we also live in light of another reality. Not just of this world, but also that of the world to come. Because we recognize that there are consequences to how we live. Eternal consequences. So as we live in light of this recognition of our sinful culture, we live constantly in light of the judgment day. When everything hidden will be revealed. The thoughts and intentions of our heart judged. And so that's what Peter reminds the church of in verse 5. He says that all these people running after sinful passions will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You see, this world lives for the present. But we recognize that this present is not all there is. There is going to be a judgment day where we are told all will be held to account. And that's not just unbelievers. As Christians, we also will be held to account. That is, we will give an accounting to God for how we then lived in this world. And so it's fitting that Peter begins our text in verse 7 reminding the church that the end of all things is at hand. That's the first truth we put above how we should live this life with the recognition that the end of all things is at hand. This might be referring to the end of our lives individually, which are, is really closer than probably most of us think, or the end of all things when Christ returns. One might come sooner than the other, but either way, there is an end. And at that end, there will be a judgment. And so in light of that, how should we live? Peter gives us two imperatives, two commands. He says in verse 7, to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. To be self-controlled and sober-minded. These terms have some overlap. Uh, they're translated in lots of different ways, but a core idea, idea behind both of them is the idea of seriousness. You see, we live in a world that doesn't take sin seriously. They scoff at it. And so they run headlong into it, if they even believe in the concept at all. We live in a world that doesn't take judgment seriously. They very much think that all that lasts is this life. And so when we are being self-controlled, we are living with the recognition that sin is serious, and sin has consequences. And so we control ourselves. We are disciplined against those sinful urges of the flesh because we recognize that sin has serious consequences, not only in our lives now, but also for eternity. But we also have a sober-mindedness. That is, a recognition that we're not just eating and drinking for tomorrow we die. We recognize that there is an accounting coming for our sins. And so we live with a serious-mindedness in consideration of eternity. The world doesn't take these threats seriously. Uh, I was reminded of, you know, all those uh, forest fires going on in California right now and throughout the West Coast. And inevitably, inevitably what happens every time there's a forest fire season is towns are warned and people are told to evacuate. And inevitably, there's always some people that don't take the warning seriously. They think the fire is not going to be that dangerous. It's not going to come to their house. And what happens? It does come and the fire is destructive, and if they're lucky, they escape with their lives, and oftentimes they don't. And that's the way many in this world live. Sin isn't that, it, sin won't really burn me. There will be no destruction of my life and house. 
but a serious recognition of the consequences of sin, a serious recognition of judgment to come, causes us as believers to live with a serious mindedness, a serious self-control, and a serious uh, sobriety about uh, the stakes that are high in this life. And if we are serious about sin and serious about judgment, then we are going to be people of serious prayer. This self-control and sober-mindedness, it works together for the sake of our prayers, Peter writes. To be people of prayer. Uh, When are people most prone to call out for help? Uh, When do people call 911? When they really feel like there's a threat of violence, they, they call the police. If they feel like there's a threat of fire, call the fire department. A true threat for the safety of health, call the ambulance. It's only when the threat is seen to be real that action is taken to call for help. And if we really saw how dangerous sin is and how it calls us, and we really saw how much of an accounting we were going to give before God, I think we too would be people who are quick to call for divine aid, who are quick to ask for help, knowing that there's no limit on our calls to heaven. God delights to hear from his people at every moment. And so we need to have a serious consideration of these aspects of life that we might be people of serious prayer, who are given to prayer. And practically, I could urge us, we've been here going through this series on the Lord's Prayer in the evenings, and to just make it a habit of every day praying that, that petition that the Lord would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There's so many paths that lead to sin, but we pray that God would lead us away from that and that God would extract the evil from our own hearts, that he would protect us from the plots and devices of Satan. So we need to be a serious-minded people that we might be a people of serious prayer. This is how we should then live. In light of this sinful world where judgment is coming, this is the way we should live. Uh, But here's something I want to point out, particularly for us in in the sort of culture we have here. I fear that we often think that somehow this comprises basically the totality of what God wants for us. That what God wants for us as Christians is to not sin, to avoid the worldliness of sin, and to pray and worship. And so then, if we are diligently going to church and also diligently avoiding sin, we are basically living the Christian life, and anything else is extra. And although these things are wonderful and important, that's not the whole of it. That's just the half of it. That's, in a sense, the defense, if you will. We also need to look to the offense, and that's what Peter gives us next. So not only are we to be a people of serious prayer, but we also ought to live in this world as people of fervent love. Take a look at verse 8. Above all, Peter writes, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Above all, more than anything else, keep loving one another earnestly or fervently. That's how we should live. This this word for earnest is an interesting one, and it actually has the idea of being stretched out in love. We are to stretch ourselves and our love for one another. Uh, Just like I sometimes need to stretch to reach items off the top shelf, maybe not all of you have that problem, but stretching up to get the rolling pin or to get some flour or oil, and 
I'm stretching myself in order to attain something that I desire. And in that way, we should be stretching, reaching out to other people, to grab hold of people, to show them love. We ought to stretch ourselves in love for one another. And how might we recognize this love? What kind of love are we talking about? Well, it's love that covers a multitude of sins. This is the type of love we want. Uh, This isn't saying that our love for others covers our sins. No, only Jesus can do that. But what it's saying is that it's a type of love to others that, as one writer says, it makes us kind to their imperfections and charitable towards their faults. That is, we're willing to patiently bear with one another, to bear with each other's weaknesses, to, to, to be gentle to others in their sins, even as we seek to be strict with ourselves and our own sins, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning. This is from Proverbs 10, verse 12, which Peter's quoting, which reminds us that hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. So that is, the product of love is the opposite of strife. It's peace, harmony, unity in the church. And as we were saying earlier, we need this love to show the world that true unity and oneness of mind and heart is possible. We want to be people of fervent love. And the rest of this passage goes on to explain what sort of love this is. And even though it seems like separate commands, this is all one thought. That we're going on to describe the way of love. And we're going to look at this in three ways. It is love that is hospitable. We want love that is generous. And love that is practical. That's the type of love we're looking for to live in this Christian life. So take a look at verse 9. The call to love hospitably. Verse 9 reads, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Being hospitable to one another. This is a display of love. And here the word hospitality um, kind of comes to us with our cultural strings where we might think of entertaining guests, having people over, having a good time. Uh, The idea of hospitality in the New Testament, it it was a far more serious endeavor. It was using your home to provide for the essential needs of food and shelter for travelers. This was often, and preeminently in this context, Christian travelers who were forced to flee persecution. That is, refugees. People fleeing persecution and really having nothing. And so they depended on the hospitality of the Christian community to bring them, welcome them into their homes, to provide a roof over their heads, to provide them food. It was using the resources of the home to provide for essential needs. And a hospitable love is this sort of open door welcoming love that welcomes people into our lives. You you see, it's really easy to just give money to charities to support things over there. That's clean. That's simple. It doesn't impose on our lives very much. But to welcome the mess of relationships into our lives is often an imposition, an intrusion, because relationships are messy. And we like to have our nicely ordered, tightly controlled schedules, nice plans of living, and we don't like it when they get upset or disturbed by people. But the hospitable love we ought to have for each other is the love of the open door that welcomes people not only into our homes, but into our lives and into our hearts. And so in this way, hospitality is broader than just the specific act 
of providing lodging for travelers. And hospitality is a heart motive that everyone can exercise. So maybe you think, hey, I'm, I'm a child and I don't own a house yet. Or uh, I'm single and I don't have a good space. We can all be people who have hearts that are open to welcome people into our lives. To welcome the imposition of relationships into us. And if that involves providing of our own resources to support others, all the better. Let's pursue it. Let us be a people that welcome relational intrusions into our lives for the sake of love. So the first thing we're called to is to love hospitably. Secondly, to love generously. Take a look at verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. You see, God just hasn't called us to love, but he's also equipped us for love. He's gifted us to love. If we want to love fervently, this love is a love that serves one another or ministers to one another. And it says each one has received a gift. What's the gift that we've received? It says at the end of the sentence, it's the grace of God. And, and this isn't referring to just the grace that brings about conversion in our lives, but it refers to every kind of endowment by which we can do good to others. Because we know and recognize that everything we have is a gift of God's grace. All our attainments, all our attributes, all our resources, everything we have that we can use to benefit others is a gift of God. And we must recognize it as a gift that belongs to us only by way of stewardship, not because it's ours by right. And if we recognize that everything we are and have is a gift of God, that attitude is the attitude that leads to a generous heart that desires to use those gifts to serve others, to minister to others in that. Uh, many years ago, and it's kind of a long story, so I won't go into the context, but uh, somehow or other, uh, my family back in Vancouver, we obtained a year of free Dairy Queen. Okay? This was every child's dream. A year of free Dairy Queen uh, as a gift that our family received. And we loved this, of course. But because this was a gift, we didn't have to pay. We just got to go. We loved bringing other people along. We loved getting to invite our friends, people we knew, to come with us and get some free Dairy Queen. And because we recognized it as a gift, we weren't stingy with it. You know, if I had been having to buy those peanut buster parfaits myself, I would have been hoarding those things because I paid for it. But when it's a gift, we delight to share. And in the same way, when we recognize how freely God has gifted us all the things we have, how could we not just delight to share them with those especially in the community of faith? And one hard truth I want us to recognize from this is that using our gifts to serve the body of Christ is actually not optional. It's not optional to use the things God's given us to serve. That's why they're called stewardships. A steward is one who's accountable to the master for using the master's resources well. And if you remember that parable Jesus told about the stewards who were entrusted with money from their master, and the wicked one just buried it in the ground. He didn't do anything with what God had given him. And so for us, the question is, what are you doing with everything God's given you? And are you using it 
to serve, to help and bless other people. You, it's not optional. You are going to be held to account for how you have used all the resources God's given you. Jesus also tells us that to whom much is given, much is required. Many of you here have had the rich privilege of growing up in the church under the word of God for many years. That is a resource. The amount of God's word that you know compared to what most believers around the world know is extreme. Even that is a resource and a gift that we need to use to serve and bless other people. God's, we're going to have to give a defense to God for how we used all we have. And I fear too often, I see this in myself as well, we can be stingy with the resources God's given us. I want to keep my time for myself. I want to use my money on my hobbies. I want to reserve my energy for doing what I want to do. I don't want to give those things to other people. But we're called to be a people of generous love who steward the gifts and resources God's given us. That doesn't mean, of course, that we go spendthrift and burn ourselves out. No, stewardship imp implies the wise allotment of each of these. But I think we often err on the side of sharing too little. We're called to love generously. But thirdly, we're called to love practically. That is, what might this hospitable, generous love look like in practice? What are some practical things we could start doing in order to be this kind of people living in this sort of world. Look at verse 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Peter here puts giftings into two broad categories, speaking and serving. Sharing God's words, serving with God's strength. Two things we can do, speak and serve. So let's look at speaking. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. And uh, don't, don't let this word oracles throw you off too much. What we're saying here is, if anyone should speak, it should be as one who speaks God's words. It's a tremendous gift to be able to share God's words with each other. His precious promises, the great encouragements, the wonderful commands, uh, the, the glorious riches of God's word. And we get to share them by encouraging one another, by correcting one another, by counseling one another, by encouraging, all these things. We get to share God's word. We share God's word in our families, parents to children. We share this among friends as we interact. We should be sharing God's words among the body of Christ. There ought to be a constant flow of the word of God throughout this congregation. In a sense, you could say we ought to be people of uh, cross-pollination. Uh, if you remember how honeybees pollinate, the practice of pollination is namely this. Uh, a bee flies to a flower, and when on that flower, it gets some pollen on it from the flower. And then, when it flies to the next flower, some of that pollen from the bee goes into that flower, and then some pollen from that flower gets onto the bee, and so on and so forth. And in this way, the flowers get the pollen they need, and the bees get the pollen they need in order to make that delicious honey. And that's a picture of what it should be like in the church. I, I'm talking to you, and a little bit of the word of God gets from me to you, a little bit of the word of God gets from you to me, the next people we go to, some word of God back and forth. And in this way, as we as the hive of God are pollinating each other with the word of God, what we end up with 
is a rich supply of the sweet Word of God built up as a storehouse to supply all our needs. We'll be like those, um, those grain silos in Egypt that had enough stored up even in times of famine so that when we do fall on hard times, we are struggling. We've been built up with a sweet supply of the Word of God to meet all our needs. And maybe practically, here's, my, here's what this might look like. It, it might look like texting one person, one verse, once a day. It could be as simple as that. Let's be people that love to share the Word of God with one another, who counsel and exhort one another every day. We want to be people that speak God's words to each other, but also people who serve one another with God's strength. Uh, also in verse 11, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And again, this isn't talking about some specific act of service, but, but anything by which we render aid to other people. And what this is saying is that we need to recognize that God doesn't just care about our spirits or souls, but God cares about us as people. And that God cares about our physical or external needs. And so we ought to be people that want to come alongside and support one another when there's challenges in health, in finances, in family matters, in employment matters. This is an essential part of being the church, is helping one another, bearing each other's burdens, even in these physical, temporal matters. And so what that, I believe, implies for us is that we should be on the lookout for ways to serve. We need to be really attuned and attentive for where there are needs. Because needs won't always just volunteer themselves. A lot of people, um, if you're like me, it's often hard to ask for help and to make our weaknesses known. And so we need to be kind of like what a good server at a restaurant is like. You know what the best servers at a restaurant are like? Uh, you're at your plate, and they're so attentive that as soon as your glass is empty of the water, boom, the water's filled right back up. As soon as your plate is done, it's cleared. As soon as your appies are done, your main course is out. And how does a good server do that? It's because they're watching. They're looking for when there's a need at your table. They're noticing when there was a spill, and there needs to be a cleanup. And in the same way, if we were really looking out for where can I serve, we were attentive to each other's needs and ready to jump at the opportunity to volunteer ourselves. Whether that's, oh, I hear you're moving, when can I come and help? Or, oh, you just moved into town, when can I have you over and into my home? Instead of waiting to be cajoled into serving, we should be people that delight to look for opportunities to meet needs, and so exercise our giftings and resources in fervent love to serve the body of Christ. Is this tiring? Yes. Can it be exhausting? Absolutely. And that's why we're told that we have to do it by the strength that God supplies. God loves to work through people who are weak. God delights to work through the one that feels lack of strength. He promises in his word that he will supply everything we need to do his will. Everything we need to do the will of God, God will supply by his spirit. So let's not shrink back, but let's press on to love one another, to share God's word with each other, to look for opportunities to serve one another, as is fitting among us as brothers and sisters called to love each other. This is what we're called to do as a church, 
to love each other generously, hospitably, practically. But here's the question for you and I tonight. How can we do this in our busy lives? You think, where do I have uh, the time to actually, and to actually intentionally try to practice each one of these things? Well, that's one of the reasons why we have, are starting small groups back up. Small groups are not um, some biblical command you have to do, but what they are is a, a built-in, regular opportunity to practice these sorts of things we've been hearing from God's Word tonight. Because you see, this entire passage gets wonderfully practiced in small groups. In small groups, we pray for one another. We recognize that we're all being called to sin, we're all suffering in different ways, and we need to cry out to God for one another. In small groups, we practice hospitality to one another. We're open and vulnerable, welcoming each other into our lives, even as we're welcomed into someone's home. It provides a wonderful context to be able to create friendships and have a sort of welcoming one another in community. And it's a place where we are generous with the gifts God has given us. And you, you shouldn't just go to a small group because you think you're going to get something great out of it, that, uh, oh, I want to go and get the teaching. It's, it's reciprocal. You should, if you're going to a small group, you have just as much of a duty to speak as to listen. Because where else are you going to share the storehouse of the Word of God with your brothers and sisters in Christ? It's a wonderful built-in opportunity for us each to be able to chime in based on what God's been teaching us what we've learned in our lives through wisdom, based on what we're seeing in the text we're studying together, it's an opportunity to speak God's words to one another. And it's also a wonderful opportunity to serve one another's needs. In small groups, it's a place where you hear firsthand, you in a sense have a front row to hearing what people are struggling with. We share our needs with each other at every meeting because we want to be able to be the first line of defense to help someone. Help someone who's, who's ill or going through a hard time at work or in their family. We're ready to serve one another and looking for those needs. And you don't have to go to small groups to do these things. You can definitely share the word of God with each other. Serve one another. But all we're trying to do is provide an opportunity. Because often in our busy schedules, these things very quickly fall by the wayside. But it's an opportunity, an occasion that's ready-made for us to invest in each other's lives. And so I'd encourage you, if you're able, to join a small group so we can actually practice living the way God would have us live. And maybe if we have to do it intentionally in a dedicated time, maybe eventually that'll permeate all our interactions and the whole life of the church. To be a people, to be a part of this church doesn't just mean attending worship. It means also investing in the life of the community, committing to serve this body with the gifts God has given you. Small groups provide an opportunity. And if we learn to live this way as grace fellowship, people of serious prayer, people of fervent love, what's the result? What's going to be the end? Look at verse 11. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The end result of this way of life, living the way God would call us to live, is that Jesus gets 
glory, as we resist sin with a sober mind, as we seriously pray, as we fervently love, as we use our gifts to serve, Jesus gets the glory. It's all from him and for him and through him. Because the truth is, Jesus Christ died and took our sin to free us not only from sin, but to free us to live in this way of new obedience. Jesus rose again that he might send the Spirit to empower us to live as people of serious prayer and fervent love. Not only that, but Jesus graciously gives us his word to instruct us in the way of love. Jesus himself, in his earthly ministry, provides the example of love, of utter compassion, of utter selflessness, of utter service, of serious prayer. And so, because Christ is at the heart of all of this, the receiving, the giving, the example, the empowering, Jesus gets all the, all the glory when we walk it out. And his grace is there to cover us in all the ways we fail in this. This is not to guilt us into this, but to call us to an ideal that is so high that we know we can't, we'll never attain it in this life. And so we must look for the world to come, where heaven will be a world of love. But until that day, we get to press on towards the prize, as we heard this morning. We get to strive forward for this high, high calling that God has given us in Jesus. And so, brothers and sisters, in light of this world that wants to call us to a way of sin, in light of the account we're going to give to God for how then we've lived on, in this our world, let's be people of serious prayer and let's be people of fervent love, hospitable love, generous love and practical love that in all things we may truly glorify our great Savior Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we love because you first loved us. Your love for us is unspeakable, it's unsearchable, and the depths of it we will never find out, even in all eternity. Lord, as we meditate on your love, and delight in your love, would you make us people of love? Would you build up this body of Christ into the stature of the fullness of Christ? That each part would be giving and receiving based on the great, varied grace you've bestowed on each one of us. Make us a selfless people who delight to serve one another, who care deeply for one another, that we would truly be an example of a community of love. We need the help of your Spirit in this. We confess our weakness and pray for grace upon grace upon grace. Lord, continue to lead us in all your ways for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask all these things. Amen.